John chapter 7. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been received, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Messiah. But some said, Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? So a division occurred among the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the temple police came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why haven't you brought him? The police answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, being one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate, and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the work that you've done through your son Jesus. Thank you for giving us living water to drink from, that we can find hope and joy and salvation in your son. Be with me as I preach from your word. Would I preach it faithfully? And would our ears be receptive to what your word has to say to us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. So take a moment to think about your favorite celebrity. I'll give you five seconds to think of the first celebrity that comes into your head. Okay, we are not going to talk about that celebrity Instead, we're going to be talking about O.J. Simpson. So, O.J. Simpson was a super ball, superstar football player. And in June 12, 1994, his wife Nicole Simpson and, fr- and friend Ronald Goldman were found stabbed. And afterwards, people watched in droves, trial after trial, as they explored whether or not O.J. was guilty. Now, I had no idea who O.J. was. I'm not a football guy. I'm not into sports. O.J. does not pique my interest. But O.J.'s trial was incredibly interesting to me. And why is that? Why do millions of people tune into news channels to hear about O.J.'s verdict? Because for us, there's a clear black and white in the situation that's gray. Because either he killed these two people or he didn't, and it drives us nuts that we don't know what the result is. That's why podcasts like Serial or Netflix shows like Making a Murderer are so popular. 
For us in our human minds, in order to be satisfied, we have to know for sure whether or not these people did the things that they were accused of doing. The Christian worldview is just as provocative. When Jesus came, it was controversial, and he polarized people. And everyone was racking their brains over the question, who is Jesus? In today's text, we see different people respond to Jesus' audacious claims. So here's the main idea. Heed or pay careful attention to the words of Jesus. And there's two reasons why we should do this. Number one, heed the words of Jesus because he reveals the mystery of the law. And number two, heed the words of Jesus because you could miss the most important news of your life. Number one, heed the words of Jesus because he reveals the mystery of the law. So here's the background to the story. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the time when Israel would celebrate the provision of God in the wilderness after God brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was also to foreshadow the celebration to come when the Messiah finally came. And then Jesus stands up and he says this in verse 37 to 39. If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture says, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So why is what Jesus is saying so significant? What does this mean? Well, for Jewish people celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, they know exactly what this means. So to help you, go ahead and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. Zechariah It's after Zephaniah in the Minor Prophets. So Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. It says this, On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea, in summer and winter alike. And on that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth. Yahweh alone and his name alone. So the Jews are referring to the day of the Lord here. And Zechariah the prophet is talking about what would happen when the day of the Lord came. That living water would flow from out of Jerusalem. And that Yahweh would be put on the throne and that he would be king. And his name alone will be praised. And we see here that Jesus, in the Feast of Tabernacles, stands in the temple in Jerusalem and says, I am that stream of living water. Ezekiel chapter 47 also talks about the vision of a new temple and that streams of living water will flow out from the holiest of holies, from the center of the temple, out into all of the world. So my point is that what Jesus is saying here is a pretty big deal and deserves a response. So going back to John chapter 7, what were the two identities that they placed on Jesus? Number 1, verse 40, verse 40 says that they said that this is really the prophet. And number 2, verse 41 says that this is the Messiah. 
So the prophet and the Messiah. And we're going to go over both of these. Number one, the prophet. Now, was there just one prophet in the Old Testament? No. There's many prophets. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You have all the minor prophets. So what prophet are they talking about? Which prophet are they referring to? There's lots of prophets in the Old Testament. Are we supposed to pick one as a prophet of prophets to be put above the prophets? What are we supposed to be looking at here? So what they're referring to as a prophet is actually seen in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So flip with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. There's a lot of context that we'll be covering here. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Okay. Verses 15 to 22. It says this. Page 138. Page 138. says this. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. But the prophet who dares to speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. You may say to yourself, how can we recognize a message the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the Lord's name, and the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So, they're talking about singular prophet here. And the prophet is going to come out from where? In verse 18. From among who? From among them. From among their brothers. So, it's going to be an Israelite. And he'll speak God's word as God commands him. And what is the way to test whether or not this prophet is speaking in the Lord, according to verse 22? Yeah. How can you tell if the prophet is from the Lord? Yeah. Yeah, so it must be fulfilled and it must be true. So he cannot be a liar and the prophecy that he, he speaks actually must be true. And this qualification would be used for prophets throughout the Old Testament. An example would be Jeremiah 28 with Hananiah the prophet. So Jeremiah is talking about how Israel would be brought out into exile and he wears a yoke on his back to show it. And Hananiah, another prophet, comes and breaks the yoke, saying, Rejoice! God has told me something different from what he told you, and Israel, and Israel will actually be freed a lot sooner than you think that they will. And Jeremiah says, Praise the Lord, let him be the one to test whether or not what you say is true. And what happens? In seven months, Hananiah dies. So this would be a qualification to see whether or not a prophet's words would be true. And according to verse 15, it says that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own brothers. So, someone's speaking here, and who is that person? Moses. Yeah, Moses. So, he's saying that the prophet would be like Moses. So, the people in John chapter 7 are referring to this prophet that's being prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy. And number two, the Messiah. So the Messiah would be the one that God sends to deliver them. And everyone knows who the Messiah is if they're a Jew. They know the expectations of the Messiah. 
Second Samuel chapter 7 talks about how it will be a descendant of David and that he would establish a kingdom that reigns forever and ever. So the people are speculating. They're hearing about the day of the Lord. They're remembering the prophecies that are made in Deuteronomy. They're remembering the promises that Zechariah is talking about, that Ezekiel is talking about. And Jesus is calling himself the stream of living water. So which one is he? Is he the prophet or is he the Messiah? He's both. both. That's absolutely correct. He is both. Turn with me to John chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. John chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. It says this, When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This really is the prophet who was to come in the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this is after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the people say that this person must be the what? Yeah, the Messiah. But he refers to him as the prophet. And then they try to take him by force to become the king. So this king or Messiah is both. He's both the prophet and the Messiah. Now in verses 41 and 42 in chapter 7, they ask a very legitimate question. right? They ask, here, doesn't the scripture, the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? So the people are debating whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. They're discussing with one another. And they ask a very legitimate question. One of the prophecies about the Messiah is that he will be born in Bethlehem. But the thing is, John isn't writing this without knowing about the other situations. He knows about the other Gospels that were written. And Matthew chapter 1 and 2 shows how Jesus is from the line of David, and also that he was born in Bethlehem. So Jesus meets all of these requirements. And these people are asking this question, trying to figure out whether or not what this prophet is saying is true. Now, here's a quick question regarding this story. Does the text say anything about Jesus leaving the people? No. Which means that where is he? He's amongst the people. He's still there. So people could very well go up to him and ask him what he's talking about. But does anyone do that? No. Doesn't it seem strange that no one goes to Jesus for the answer? That's the same way that we are when we don't seek answers in Scripture. Jesus is ready and willing to explain the Scriptures to us. And it's fine to ask questions when we read. Those questions were very legitimate questions that these people were giving. But if you don't delve deeper and try to answer these questions and dig into God's Word to find these answers, then you don't go deeper. And you leave it at the surface level. So... Non-Christians, we invite you to ask questions. Questions are not bad. We are not opposed to questions. It's not like you're poking the Christian bear and the bear's going to lash out at you for bothering him. We want you to inquire. Ask about it. Delve deep. But don't try to grasp onto a hole in an argument that you might not fully understand yet and use it as a trump card to overtake all other things before you qualify it. And on the flip side, Christians, 
We as Christians have to inquire about what we read. We have to ask questions. We have to be interested into it and searching for answers. The Christian faith is non-anti-intellectual faith. Faith and intellect work hand in hand. If you ask questions as you read, you have to try to answer them. So we want to ask questions. We want to figure out what the Bible is talking to us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us through his word. So if we want to heed the words of Jesus well, we have to dig into the scriptures, wrestle with it, and try to find answers. Here's the second reason why you need to heed the words of Jesus. Heed the words of Jesus because you could be missing the most important news of your life. So people are discussing whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah, whether or not he meets the requirements of the prophet and of the Messiah. And then in verse 43, a division happens. People, some people believe that Jesus is the prophet and the Messiah, and other people don't believe it. In verse 44, some people want to arrest Jesus, but no one lays a hand on him. And why does nobody lay a hand on him? It wasn't his time. It wasn't his time. That's absolutely correct. John chapter 8 verse 20 talks that no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So it's not even the people's own authority that are able to seize him. Jesus is actually not exhibiting his authority in this way at this time. It's not time for the people to respond. Because what happens when the people respond? They kill him. So, no one lays a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. And what happens after in verse 45? The temple police go to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees get angry at the temple police for not arresting him. Earlier in the same chapter, in verse 32, the Pharisees send out the temple police to go arrest Jesus. So these people are going out with the sole purpose of arresting this man, and they return empty-handed. Now, why do the police not arrest him, according to verse 46? Because... No man had ever what? Spoken like this. Now think about who these people are. They're temple police. right? Think about just the average cop today in today's world. Think about the amount of excuses you must, you must hear if you're a policeman. You pull over a guy. He tells you, I'm going with the flow of traffic. You know, I had no other choice but to go over this double yellow line and go into the carpool lane. Right? I had no choice but to park in the fire lane. You hear excuse after excuse after excuse. And these people are temple police, so they must have also heard lots of heresy. Different people coming, bringing false teaching. Different people coming in to try to disturb the peace. And the temple police are coming back to the Pharisees and telling them, I had never heard anyone speak like this. Jesus is utterly unique in what he's saying. They have never heard anything like this. This isn't the same as those people who are giving false teaching before. This isn't like those other people who come in and try to disturb the peace within the temple or cause division. This man is coming and speaking in a way that we have never heard before. And then you hear the Pharisees respond next. And what do they say? They say, are you fooled too? They begin to belittle them. They say, have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd 
who does not know the law is accursed. So, look at verse 48. Why are the people deceived according to the Pharisees? Because they do not trust the authorities and the prophets. So, what are the Pharisees basing the judgment of whether or not Jesus is the Messiah on? Themselves. They're looking at themselves. They're saying, we should know the answers. You don't see us leaping before this guy is the Messiah. Why are you listening to him? And then you go on in verse 50 and 51 to see that even a Pharisee doesn't agree with the Pharisees. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, being one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before he hears from him and knows what he's doing, does he? And then the Pharisees trust their own knowledge so much, they retort to Nicodemus in, chapter, in verse 52 saying, You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the Pharisees are placing complete trust on themselves. They're being incredibly rude to these temple police, belittling them for their lack of knowledge. And they're even turning on their own fellow peer, Nicodemus, for actually bringing up legitimate law policy. So, let's put what they say to the test. In verse 52, they say to investigate and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. 2 Kings. That is before 1 Chronicles and after 1 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It says this. He restored Israel's border from Lebohemath and as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. The God of Israel had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath-Hepper. Now, I'm sure we all love ancient Israelite geography, so I know I don't have to say this. But Gath-Hepper is in Galilee. So, who's from Galilee, according to verse 25? Jonah. Jonah. And Jonah is what, according to verse 25? A prophet. Now, these Pharisees are supposed to know the law. And they say that what? No prophet has come from Galilee. So, the Pharisees lose even on their own standard of understanding what the law is. Even they, in their claiming to understand the law and be helders of the law and pride themselves on their knowledge of the law, don't remember a simple fact like the fact that Jonah is from Galilee. Now, you have to heed the words of Jesus because if you don't pay careful attention to what he has to say, you'll miss the most important news of your life. Now, we can make fun of the Pharisees all day because to be honest, they look pretty ridiculous, right? We can look back in hindsight, 2020 vision, look at what they're saying and kind of laugh at what they're doing. Fools, right? Belittling other human beings. Claiming that they don't know what they're talking about. while relying on yourself. But we do the same thing too, don't we? Here's three things that the Pharisees do that we do. Number one, you rely on yourself 
to find your own answers. The Pharisees rely on their own authority instead of the Bible's authority. See, in verse 48, they say, don't you trust us, the authorities of the law, right? And we often do that with ourselves as well. If you're at church long enough and you hear from God's word long enough, you start to think that you have a good idea of what Christianity looks like. So you have a gut reaction. So if someone tells you that something isn't correct or, or something that you believe to be outlandishly untrue, your gut reaction is to be, I don't think so, you know? I don't think that's true. But how often do we actually point to Scripture as our authority? Or do we say, you know, I've been going to church my whole life. I've been going for several decades now. I was born straight out of the womb, right into the sanctuary. You know, this is where I live. This is my domain. And I feel like I know the Bible pretty well. And I can tell you during my vast experience of my time at church that you should not be running around in the sanctuary, right? So we can do that on ourselves in a lot of different ways. We can have gut reactions where we say that based on our own authority, that something is not true or unchristian. Number two, you look down on those who disagree with you. Look at verse 48. It says, have any of a Rulers or Pharisees believed in him. But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. So what do the Pharisees accuse a crowd of not knowing? The law. So they're saying that the crowd does not know the law. But look at verse 42. What are the first four words that are said there? Doesn't the scriptures say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived. So what do you see the crowd doing? They're referring to what? Scripture. The crowd is referring to Scripture. And then if you look in verse 52, where the Pharisees claim that no prophet had come from Galilee, do they quote Scripture? No. No. And yet in verse 49, you see the Pharisees say that they know the law. That the crowd doesn't know the law. How often do we rely on our memory bank or what we claim to know and then look down on those who might very well be speaking good biblical truths into our lives because we become uncomfortable? Or maybe we don't like the idea of us not knowing something. Maybe even studying the Bible for a long time or maybe even trying to be a good Christian It might feel to you as though if I don't know this biblical truth, or if I don't act like I know, then maybe I'm not being a good Christian. Or maybe I'm not holding the law very well. Or maybe people won't listen to me if I don't know every single biblical truth. So what we do in turn is that we start to look down on those people who disagree with us. Maybe it might even go as far as that person who has that track record of being wrong. Again and again and again. Kind of labeled as a fool. The Pharisees are the teachers of the law. So they're teaching these people. They probably had to correct them many different times. And yet in this one instance, in this crucial moment, determining who Jesus is, the Pharisees are completely wrong. But they can't look past their pride. And number three, you assume strength in numbers. 
They assume strength in numbers. Look at verse 48. Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? So they're saying, have any of us, have any of us, the ones around each other, the ones that know the law, have any of us actually affirmed this guy? And then in verse 52, when Nicodemus tries to bring up a small point, not even debating whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, and they turn on him and say, are you from Galilee too? Like Galilee is this poor area full of fishermen, right? You must be from there too. Because you obviously can't see what we see. That's very clearly obvious that Jesus isn't the Messiah. See, we do that too. We assume strength in numbers. Aren't there times where we assume that we're in the right because we're surrounded by a bunch of people that agree with us? Right? I can remember countless times where bullies get egged on by their peers. And you start to think that it's okay because you're surrounded by bullies. And you might think that you're actually secure because of these other people that are surrounding you. Almost as though if you're proven to be wrong, you could pin the blame on these other people. Like these other people affirmed this. So I believed them, and then I did what they had to say. But the reality is, is that this security in other people can lead you straight to hell. Think about Adam in the garden. Eve offers him the fruit and he takes a bite. And when God indicts Adam, who's the first person that he points to? The woman. Right? He's saying, I did it with her. She was around me. The serpent was egging me on. These people surrounding me were completely for it. Nobody told me not to. And yet Adam is cursed because of the sin that he commits. Think about even in the real life. In 1978, Jonestown this cult, all drink the Kool-Aid together and they commit suicide as they try to reach this mysterious arc on this comet to get off to heaven. Now, it might seem absurd to us to drink this Kool-Aid and die to ourselves, but imagine sitting in a field with everyone around you drinking this Kool-Aid with you. You look around, you question yourself for a little bit, you look at the liquid, And then you see one guy next to you take a sip. And you see the person two rows in front of you take a sip. And everyone starts to do it together. And then you see the leader that you so admire also taking drink from this Kool-Aid. And you're looking at this drink and you think, well, it probably isn't that harmless. Everyone else is doing it. And yet the result is death. And the Pharisees do the same thing. And we are in danger of doing the same thing when we don't heed the words of Jesus. Now, if you're a non-Christian, you might say, that's exactly why I don't buy religion. There's just too many Kool-Aids out there. I don't know which religion to trust. And there's so many different religions, even so many different views on who Christ is, that it would be impossible for me to look into every single one and figure out which one is true. It's presumptuous for Christians to assume that their religion is true. No view of God is better than the other. I hear you, and this is what I have to say. Number one, if there's no God at all, then that would make sense. But in order for this to make sense, you have to assume that there probably isn't a God to begin with, which means that he's not worth searching. 
And number two, you have to believe that God is an impersonable force that doesn't care about what your beliefs about him are. In other words, you have to believe that God won't punish you if you're wrong. So you have to believe, number one, that God probably doesn't exist. And number two, even if he did exist, he probably wouldn't blame me. He would understand my situation. So in your open-mindedness, what you're actually saying is you're assuming this worldview that you've learned in the West, and you're actually telling everyone else that they're wrong. So in you saying that everyone could be wrong, you're actually saying that everyone is wrong. So I want to help you. And since you want to know what this type of Kool-Aid for Christianity is, here's the gospel. God creates the world in order to be good. And it is good. And man breaks the world when we sin. In order to fix our brokenness and pay the punishment that we deserve for our sins, God sends Jesus, fully man and fully God, to die on the cross for our sins. And he rises from the dead on the third day. That if you repent and put your faith in him, he will forgive you and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. Now, if you look in verse 43 in the text, you'll notice that a division occurs. But do you notice that there is no third group? There is no neutral group. There is no one there that goes, I'm not sure if Jesus is the Messiah or not the Messiah. It's a very clear two-person group here. Jesus' claims are divisive. He's either the Messiah or he's not. There is no in-between. When Jesus talks in verse 37, he says, If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. Is there a way to half drink? No. You either drink from the stream of living water or you don't. So non-Christian, it's okay to take your time and explore and discover what the truth is. But know that you're not yet is a no. And know that there are valid punishments for you rejecting the gospel. There is no in-between. You have to stake your flag in the ground. Christians, as people who need to heed the words of Jesus, here's some points of application. Number one, if we attend church long enough, we start to think that we know what's correct. We, we can be trapped in our ideas of the way that we think that it should be instead of the scripture. And when we do that, what we actually do is that we create our own Messiah in the view of the way that we think that he should be. And what happens is that this Messiah starts to conflict with the idea of the real Messiah, Jesus. Think about what the Pharisees did. They studied the law. They know what their expectations of the Messiah is. And their view of the Messiah disagreed with Jesus. If we're going to heed God's word, we have to know that Jesus is the word. And that we have to look at the word in order to heed what truth really is. But don't approach scripture as a mechanism to achieve your own ends either. Scripture is a sword, but not to attack other people and to break them down. The Bible is not the means to your end, but it is the goal. The goal is to get to know Scripture, to know Scripture, to understand Scripture. And we as Christians and we as a church need to submit ourselves to the Word and to heed or pay careful attention to the Word. And number two, don't fear man. Don't be surprised if people don't take the gospel message well. 
Now, that doesn't exclude poor evangelism. I'm not saying go out and give a terrible gospel presentation and pin it on them because God's word will use the way that it pleases. But just know that the message of Jesus is decisive, divisive. If we rely on ourselves, it becomes easy to become afraid because we're relying on ourselves. and We don't trust ourselves. Right? Think about how much you actually trust yourself. So if you go out and you have a fear of man, you're relying on yourself, then you will be afraid. But God's word is a solid foundation on which we can stand. If we heed God's word and we let that be our authority rather than ourselves, then we can stand firm in the Christian life. We can make bold mistakes and confidence knowing that the Spirit forgives us when we confess sin. That we can build upon our own lives. That we can improve. That we have a church body that's looking out for each other and edifying each other. So in all aspects of the Christian life, we need to heed God's word and go forth in confidence. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scriptures and what you've given to us. Thank you that Jesus was so bold and so willing to submit himself to your will. That he didn't fear man, but that he was willing to come and offer living water to us. God, and for those of us in this room that are Christians, will we continue to drink? Will we celebrate what you have done for, for us? And for, if there are any non-Christians in this room, would they heed the words of Jesus? Would they respond? According to your will, would you save them? Praise in Jesus' name.